Blog Talk Radio. Let me tell you about something new. A new show called G's Power. G's Power. Real talk for real saints. Are you ready? And it's for real. Welcome to G's Power Hour live every weekday at 11.30 a.m. on Never Had It So Good Entertainment Network. Your host, G, will bring you informative and entertaining guests and a variety of topics in a way that you can absorb and enjoy. Listen in weekdays and call in at 516-387-1944. We love interaction. All shows can be downloaded if you miss one or found on iTunes the next day. G's Power Hour is powered by Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, kings and queens, angels and saints. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. Happy Friday, everybody. It's a a bit of a chill out there, but it's still a pretty day out there, and I hope you all are taking advantage of it and, uh, you know, preparing for this weekend, especially with the uh, championship playoff games this weekend. Uh, Go Eagles. So, anyway, um, a friend of mine uh, with the FAMU Law School was telling me about a gentleman that's uh, working with uh, something called the Economic Justice Clinic, and I wanted to find out more about it. So, uh, we've invited Professor Mark Dorosin, and I hope I didn't mispronounce that, and you can correct me, to join us this morning. Are you there? Good morning. I am here. Good morning. Yes. It's actually pronounced Great. Dorison, but close enough. Dorison. Okay. Won't mess it up again. <laughs> so how are you this morning? Oh, I couldn't be any better. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well, and, and we are blessed to have you this morning. So tell us about the clinic and, you know, how did this get started? And, and before you do that, though, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'd be happy to. So my name is Mark Dorison. I am a professor of law and the director of clinical programs and experiential education here at FAMU Law School in Orlando. I uh, have been here at FAMU for about a year and a half. Before that, I spent the last about 30 years as a civil rights lawyer and litigator in North Carolina, um, doing the real whole range of racial justice advocacy, everything from voting rights to employment discrimination to um, environmental justice, uh, equal access to public services, school segregation. So really spent, uh, you know, the first part of my career, um, you know, on the ground representing uh, individuals, families, and communities uh, fighting against racial injustice and um, you know, reached a point where what I wanted to do was now help raise the next generation of civil rights lawyers, and, and that's what we're trying to do here at FAMU College of Law. So your focus, though, with this clinic is, is kind of on economic justice. Can you explain what that means? Because what what, I, I, I kind of think I know what it means, but I want to get clarification from you, and I want our audience to understand why that focus you know, I'm, and I appreciate that because I think that context is really important. Um, you know, FAMU Law School was founded with a, with a core mission of providing legal support and resources to underserved communities. And um, as the school was looking at different ways to doing that, you know, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd um, and the activism from the Black Lives Matter movement that followed, there began to be for the for a long overdue conversation across the country about economic inequities and about the racial wealth gap that exists and which really in many ways underlies lots of the other um, racial inequities we see in education, in um, employment, um, in, you know, in, in housing. And so when uh, Dean Keller, who's the dean of the law school, you know, wanted to make that issue and the, the institutional nature of, of the wealth, racial wealth disparity, a core of our work, um, we decided to develop this economic justice clinic, which is designed to um, provide legal services and support to, um, to folks in the black community who want to start a small business, 
folks that already have a small business and, and need legal assistance to keep it going, to help it grow, and to nonprofit organizations that serve those communities. So tell me exactly what do you do in terms of, like how do you get your information in terms of the economic disparities? I guess it's in particular uh, wage disparities, I guess, was one thing I want to know about. And then I guess the creation of generational wealth within African-American communities is, is something else that I'd be interested in if you could talk about that. Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, there's there's a number of you know there are a number of metrics out there that that you know researchers and you know organizations that have studied the issue of the wealth gap, the racial wealth gap in America have looked at. And you know, there's you know you can look at a range of metrics. So um, you know, some basic data which you know comes from everything from the census to you know educational uh, research shows things like, for example. The wealth of black families in America is one tenth that of white families. So, you know, just to put that in a in a real basic um, formula, you know, for every one dollar that a white family has in America, a black family has ten cents. And you know, we also know that black families are twice as likely to have no wealth, meaning the value of the debt exceed the value of the assets. Um, there are widespread disparities in home ownership. Um, you know, in the in 2016, for example, 72% of whites own their own home compared to just 44% of black families. Um, from particularly hits home with us at FAMU, black students have more student debt and are paying uh, and paying off is made more challenging because overall they earn lower average incomes than whites, even with the same educational experience. 27% uh, less for for. Um, black graduates with a with a BA degree and 14% less for uh, those with an associate's degree. Um, the you know the Department of Commerce shows that studies show that people of color are disproportionately represented in the lowest wage earning jobs. And we also know that um, from our colleagues in the African American Chamber of Commerce, for example, and others that, you know, despite the best efforts, black businesses face particular challenges. You know, just 1% were able to obtain business loans the first year they were organized. When those loans are received, they're often at higher rates. Um, as a result, a higher percentage of black business owners have to rely on personal wealth or family savings for startup. Um, and then we also know in the wake of the pandemic that COVID hit those small um, minority-owned businesses the hardest. They were the most vulnerable to the economic crisis, and they were least able to take advantage of the relief programs, um, sometimes because they didn't have the kind of um, legal resources that were needed to secure, for example, like those PPP loans that the government gave out. So all of that, you know, and, and all of that, which, which, which I believe has its roots in our, you know, historical legacy and continuing impact of institutional uh, racial discrimination, that's, that's the, that, those are the challenges that we're hoping to help begin to address. Your task is daunting, um, <laughs> uh, not an easy fix. Uh, I, and um, anybody that expects it to be it has a head un, underneath a rock or something like that. But um, where do you start? It, it, it is a daunting task, but, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single begins step. Begins with a right? single so, step. Amen to that. Yeah. So that's what we're going to – we're going to take more than a single step, but we're going to start. And um, and what, you know, what we want to do is really provide these kind of direct services to, to individuals and families who need it um, with the understanding that that direct um, immediate service uh, has the potential to make these the beginnings of these broader institutional changes. So um, let's start with one of the things you talked about, the dime to the dollar disparity um, how what kind of things are, are discussed with uh, with relation to to bridging that gap or bringing you know narrowing that gap? Um, didn't it, because one of the things that I think is 
maybe you talked about college, saving up for college and stuff like that, money that we have, um, debt we have after college. I think maybe one of the things, do we not necessarily take college seriously enough to start early enough with the savings? I, I mean, and yes, it's going to be more difficult, but do we need to start earlier with trying to build that nest egg for college? That's certainly one of the one of the um, things that that folks need to try to do when they can. Um, there's also, I mean, I think there's you've got to look at that from both the kind of demand side. How do we as individuals and families? Um, prepare to get our kids into through higher ed, but there's also got to be on the supply side, right? The question of student loans, the cost of colleges, um, you know, those have to be addressed as well. There are, there are um, policy decisions that have been made that have, we know, have these disparate impacts. But, but I think uh, just to go, you know, to think about your question in a little more zoomed out way, you know, and think, I, I think about that dollar to dime, um, ratio a lot, and one of the things that it, we I think we have to be uh, uh, keep in mind is that wealth. When we talk about wealth, that's not just about accumulating money, right? That's just not how much you earn or or how much you save. Mm. It's also about ensuring that that future generations have the opportunity to get ahead, right? And, and those opportunities are made possible through the ownership of assets of every type, not just what you have in the savings account, which is important, but also a home, a business, mm -hmm. retirement savings. I mean, all of the, those are the things that, that give households and families the means to thrive rather than simply mm -hmm. get by. Um, and so there, there does, uh, you're, you're exactly right. There definitely has to be some kind of longer arced thinking. But for and folks who are struggling day to day, it's hard to it's hard to do that, right? It is. But I think about uh, you know we're having this conversation, and I thought I think about maybe in terms of where our value systems are now, and then where maybe our parents' value systems were. You know, I I was a product of uh, my mom was born in 1923. You know, Depression era you know, thinking, you know, in terms of just scrapping and clawing and, and say, hanging on to every dime, you know. And so, you know, she was trying to make sure that, you know, at the end of her life that she had some money set aside for me. And I'm like, go travel, you know, go do something, you know, don't worry <laughs> about me. And, you know, I, I'm okay, you know, but, you know, I, the, the people that came, I think, from her era w were thinking about generational wealth and what, even if it's a little bit, what can I leave for the, you know, the generation that comes after, you know? So I, I don't know if we've kind of gotten away from the whole idea of creating generational wealth or um, if we've gotten away from uh, just trying, just realizing that savings is as important, having a balanced life, basically. Savings is as important as going on that vacation, you know. Um, Absolutely. And, and you still have to maintain the day-to-day -day, uh, lifestyle. And I think, to me, one of the things that we have to recognize with having income disparities, you know, you can't always worry about what the grass looks like on the other side of the street. <laughs> you know, you've got that's to right. work, no, work with exactly the grass right. that you have, <laughs> you know. That's right. I, and, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great point because, um, you know, the, the idea of savings, right, even, the, even what we mean by that, um, you know, does that mean just um, a nest egg in a, in a bank account that's, you know, that's earning a little bit of interest? I mean, you mm -hmm. know, owning, owning your own home is, is, an, is, an, is a savings, right, is an investment. Yeah. Own, owning your own yeah. business is an investment. Getting that education, as, as you mentioned earlier, is an investment. It is, um, you know, again, it is, the, it is the, the, really the key to, like, creating this, this generational wealth. And so, you know, when you think about those, you know, the, the four key racial gaps that have been identified, you know, in, in studies like by the Brookings Institute, for example, the four key racial gaps that they identify are wages, education, housing, and investment. And so if you think about that, 
that that really goes to all of the you know that that idea that your uh, that your mama had and your um, you know and your grandma and that was you know folks understood that education was the key to to getting better wages how you know the having a house was something that you know would be able to be passed on and that would be a an asset that would tra- could transcend generationally and i think we've got to just get back to that you know i think so much of of what we think about is you know like, can i get a job that pays a little more um, that's all mm-hmm. important to be sure but this aspect of also recognizing the longer the longer-term value of some of these other other measures, and I that's partly what, what the clinic is going to try to do. Okay, uh, I think one of the things we have to do, though, too, is look at uh, community and what we bring to to our communities, and, and have our communities kind of turn around and invest in us. We have to. Uh, my uh, a friend of mine and I are looking into trying to do some kind of a nonprofit that deals with what we call the real home economics, I guess you could say, you know, how to get the most bang out of your buck. So, you know, yeah, it. you would love to make more, but with what you got, what are you doing with it? How do you um, make it so that you still, you know, you're not stressing so much and you can still have a, a life that is fulfilling, uh, but, you know, making the most out of what you have. So I think we need to share those uh, lessons. Sometimes we don't share what we know, and I think it's important that we share those lessons with our communities, so that uh, you know everybody as a whole is is doing better. So. That and you know one of the one of the specific targets for our clinic work is nonprofits like the one you just described that are doing work. Um, to enhance the quality of life in the community. And so, you know, what we know is there are a lot of nonprofits that are that are working to address a range of issues, you know, mm-hmm. impacting um, black families. And a lot of them are small. They're, the folks who run them are motivated by uh, uh, their own personal commitment to social change. And we know that they often don't have the resources to, to get legal assistance. So what, mm-hmm. one of the things that, that we can do is in the clinic is provide those legal resources to those organizations um, so that they can – to ensure that they are able to maximize the, their ability uh, to serve their constituents. Okay. We are going to take a quick break, and we are here with Mark. Please, one more time. <laughs> Dorison. Dorison. Thank you. We're here with Mark Dorison. He is with the Economic Justice Clinic at the FAMU Law School, and he's giving us some insight and answering your questions. If you have questions, by the way, the number is 516-387-1944. G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. We'll be right back. This is Douglas Dobbs of Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service. We have served the Central Florida community for 29 years with quality funeral and cremation services. Honoring all religions and faiths, we have been here for many grieving families. Whether it's a complete funeral service with a burial or a simple, dignified cremation, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service is here for you. Located at 430 North Kirkman Road at the 408 Expressway, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service, 407-578-7720. Dobbs dedicated to serving our families. Over the past 60 years, Dove Beauty Bar's superior formula has remained unchanged. But when it comes to beauty, everything changed. Together, we redefined beauty. We said no to stereotypes and yes to every type. We let go of judgments and embraced what makes us unique. We're proud to have been there with you, caring for you every step of the way. Here's to the next 60 years. Good morning. Welcome back to G's Power Hour. I never had it so good entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. We are talking with Mark Dorison, who is with the FAMU Law School uh, Economic Justice Clinic. And the number, if you have questions for him, is 516-387-1944. So I may have gotten off topic with what you do at the clinic, but Give me a little bit more insight. So how do you, <clears throat> excuse me, what do you do 
and do you do it with just the students or the community? Tell me a little bit more. So the clinic runs like a little nonprofit law office. So, uh, and you know, I am as the clinic supervisor. I'm kind of like the senior partner, and I have six uh, brilliant young law students who are like the junior associates here in the in the firm, if you will, and folks who are uh, in need of legal services related to um, what we call transactional business law can reach out to the clinic um, and we'll, we'll conduct an intake. The students will conduct an intake interview and um, assess the needs that the client has, determine, will determine if it's something that we're able to handle. And if so, we will then you know, engage as the, as the lawyers on behalf of that client. Um, and when I say transactional business law, what I mean is really any kind of legal issue a business or someone who wants to start a business might have with the exception of direct litigation. So this, this you know, if, if someone wants to, you know, sue their landlord or um, something like that, that wouldn't be something that we would help them find other counsel to do. What we're okay. going to do is everything else that a business might need. So, you know, you mentioned you're going to start a nonprofit, so you may need advice on um, setting, you know, incorporating under the Nonprofit Corporation Act. You might need assistance mm -hmm. getting your 501c3 status from the IRS or with bylaws or, or anything else. If you were, um, you know, you, a business, a, an entrepreneur might need help saying, you know, I want to start a business. I don't know what form it should take. So everything from the very basic kind of startup and formation to um, what ongoing businesses have to deal with all the time, contracts, leases, permits, um, employment issues, you know, um, the, really the range of services that all businesses um, need, but that, you know, for a lot of small businesses, for a lot of nonprofits that are just so focused on serving the clients or serving their com constituencies, get backburnered. And so what we want to do is make sure that those businesses have are, you know, operating uh, consistently with their legal requirements and also have the, you know, infrastructure to grow and thrive. So I, you kind of make me think of what I, I've had a discussion about with there's some people that get into business because of their passion for a specific occupation. And so they're good at, let's say, um, Let's say if you're an athlete and you you know you want to do training and you may be good at you know training getting into training, but you're not necessarily good at the business of a having a business, mm -hmm. you know, and because you know I mean that's not something that we get taught uh, coming you know coming up you know we we get taught about going out and getting that job, you know, and we get the job. But we don't necessarily, unless like we have a family-owned business somewhere in there, we don't necessarily get in, engaged and involved in the business of business. How do you manage that business? How do you budget that business? You know, who do you bring on board in terms of partnerships, whether it's um, within the business or it's uh, business networking? You know, a lot of that stuff, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily come natural to a lot of people, and so then they need resources such as your clinic to help them get started and hopefully stay longer than is it what two years maybe that the the average small business uh lasts before they start to kind of fall apart and, and, and i'm not sure so yeah i think i think it's somewhere in that range for sure yeah and and yes that's exact but but your summary of what what we want to do is exactly right and so um you know the Starting a business and, and having your own business can be transformational for, for, from a from personal standpoint, for the kind of generational um, wealth gener opportunities that we were talking about. It, there's also mm -hmm. lots of risk, right? And you want to make sure that you're, um, you're, you understand those and you can manage those. I think um, you know, what, what the clinic will be able to do is the legal piece, but we're also partnering with several other um, advocacy organizations and community groups 
for the other pieces that a small business might need, exactly what you're describing. Um, so maybe someone comes and says, you know, I have this idea for a business, um, but I don't, you know, I don't have anything else. So, you know, they may not be ready for the legal services, but maybe what they need are some is technical assistance, like developing a business plan or, um, you know, some um, financial literacy uh, training to understand what will it really cost to run this business the way I want to. And um, so, you know, we recognize that the legal uh, piece is just, you know, one slice of the pie to creating that successful business. And we want to make sure that our folks are connected with all the, you know, all the other resources that can help. Okay. Now, how how big is your team? Who comprises your team at the clinic? Well, it's I'm the, you know, like I said, I'm the clinic director, and then we have six students uh, that are working, you know, in the clinic this uh, this semester, and we'll have six to eight every semester, so spring, summer, fall, um, mm-hmm. which is ac- which is really another great piece of this of the clinic that I'm so excited about because. Not only are we going to be able to provide direct legal support and services to folks in the community, but we're training these young lawyers not only to do this work and give the knowledge of how to do it, but also building in them a passion for public interest law, for serving in the community, for community-based lawyering, for recognizing that, you know, as lawyers – um, they they will have both the knowledge and skills and you know the really the responsibility to work to make um, meaningful social change. So, is there a particular criteria for a, a student who is interested in, in getting into the, the clinic, working with the clinic? Is there what do you require? Yeah, there, there's some there's some kind of um, administrative requirements. They have to have completed a certain number of credits already in law school. They have to have taken um, the the required class in professional responsibility and ethics, and then they apply to be in the clinic. And one of the things they do in that application is explain why they want to do this work, why they think it's important. And so, um, again, because what we want to do is really we really want to engage and encourage students who are already thinking about a commitment to public service and to social justice. And I can tell you, and, and uh, I, wish, I wish I had had more time in advance, I would have got some of them on the line here, but, but many of them in this first cohort of, of, uh, uh, of the clinic have, you know, have real personal connections to, to wanting to be part of this work. They have, some of them have, um, parents who started a small business and struggled because they didn't have access to legal services. Um, some of them have ideas about starting their own business at some point, and so, um, and and but all of them have a deep, you know, a deep commitment to using their legal skills to really make this kind of structural changes we need. And that's really that restores my faith, you know. And then now you are, turn around and, and provide these services to those members of the community that uh, that need uh, help up and getting the, the, their business launched. So, what do you require of them? Do they have to bring certain things to the table already, or they just come with their idea? How do, how does that work? Yeah, I, they you know they come with their with what they've identified as their need. And, um, and we then, like through an intake process, determine if, if what they need is something that, you know, is, a, is something that we can provide assistance with and uh, help them, you know, uh, address that need or achieve the priority or goal that they've set for themselves. Again, if it's something that we can do, we'll, we would take that on. If it's something we can't do, we would try to help them find the resources that could address it. There's certainly, you know, we've certainly, I ran a clinic like this back in North Carolina, and, you know, there are certainly people who come who are just, they're not at the stage where they need legal help, right? They're not ready to even form the thing, right? They need, they need a business plan or they need some technical assistance in really understanding, you know, what are the questions that they need to be thinking about, um, there are others who come with, you know, with very specific 
may come with very specific needs. You know, I'm ready to move the business out of my house into a, you know, into a storefront, and I need, I need, I've got the landlord's given me this lease, and I need someone to review it and tell me if it's, if it's good, if it's, you know, what what it says, what it means, what are the risks, um, and then, you know, we we would help with that. It's, you know, the thing about transactional law, if you think about it, it's. You know, whether you're doing it for a small business here in the Paramore community or Eatonville or someplace else, the, the legal questions are the same as if you were a lawyer working with, you know, an ongoing business in, in any community, right? The contracts, issues if you have employees, issues of, you know, employment, employees, taxation, um, and for nonprofits, you know, whether you're a small community-based nonprofit, or, you know, a big ongoing nonprofit. You still have to make sure you're operating consistently with the IRS regulations, um, that you're doing your annual reports. And, and so um, it really, you know, we have this intake process where we go, you know, we spend some time talking to the prospective client about what their needs are, what, they're, what they hope to get from the clinic. And, um, and again, and then we assess whether it's something we can help them with. And then the the great thing is where the legal services are designed specifically or targeted for folks who otherwise can't afford a lawyer, right? This is this is this is not for you know the McDonald's Corporation to come in or some or you know Florida Blue. Um, right. This is for folks who you know, but for the, this opportunity, would just would not be able to get legal services. So that that's you know that's the other aspect of it. Yeah, I was going to ask you, was there a particular cost involved to the um, consumer that might might need your services? And where are you getting, I guess, the funding from for this? Uh, I I guess one of the good things is that you have the students involved, but do you get any type of sponsorship or other type of support? We did get a, a, you know, we were able to launch the clinic with a very uh, generous support from Wells Fargo. Um, and that helped really launch everything, and it's, you know it's um, helping support the students through fellowships. Um, and then, of course, you know as part of the law school, the clinic, some of the clinic funding comes from the state. Um, you know, this the we have multiple clinics here at the law school. It's a you know it's part of the experiential education program, which is you know the ABA the American Bar Association recognizes as a is a critical part of of a student's law school education actually getting real life hands-on experience uh mm-hmm. working with clients and and in the community so but but um we're always looking for more support if you if you uh if you know any anybody who's uh wants to do some wants to support some important civil rights and uh education work um pass my number on Okay. All right. I I do want to just say one thing about the cost. Um, The legal services are at no cost, you know, so you don't pay for the for the legal advice. But but if there were external costs, like so, if you wanted to start a nonprofit, and you know, there's a filing fee for to file the articles of articles of incorporation. That's something that the client would be responsible for. That's not something that the client can can subsidize, but all the legal work that goes into it is, is at no cost. Yeah. Right. So we're going to take a quick break, break. And when we come back, Mark, I want to ask you about some work that you're doing for Eatonville. Okay. Sure. So the number, if you have questions for Mark, is 516-387-1944. G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. We'll be right back. Having a wedding, reception, family reunion, planning a banquet, or some other fundraising event. Need to share your knowledge through a workshop or seminar, or it's a difficult time and you need to plan a wake or repast. Let us help. At our gatherings, let us reduce the stress and make the occasion memorable, treasured. Call our gatherings at 407-968-9387 or email ourgatherings at yahoo.com. Let us help plan your special event. This is Douglas Dobbs. 
owner and funeral director at Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service. We have served the Central Florida community with two generations of family funeral service. With the recent addition of my son Brandon, we are here to take care of the needs of Central and West Orlando. From simple cremation to a full burial, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service is here to help you. Located at 430 North Kirkman Road at the 408 Expressway, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service, 407-578-7720. Dobbs, dedicated to serving our families. Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. And um, toward the end of the show, we're going to hear back from uh, Civil Rights Attorney Kevin Anderson. He's giving us an update on one of the topics we addressed yesterday, so uh, make sure you stay with us. Right now we have Mark Dorison, who is with the FAMU Law School and the Economic Justice Clinic there, and um, want to find out about what you're doing for Eatonville. Well, we're working with a community-based organization there called Help CDC, um, and they have launched in conjunction with the clinic and community legal services uh, a a program to address the issue of property in the community um, and and the the potential and real risk of, you know, land loss in the black community. So... um, just to just to heirs property is a, is kind of a legal term, but just so folks can know what we talk about when we say that is heirs property refers to family owned land that is jointly owned by the descendants of a person who passed who did not have a will, um, and so when someone dies without a will, um, who owns land or owns anything, but we're specifically talking about land, that land passes to their heirs in equal undivided shares. So if, if, if um, grandma uh, passes and, you know, she had five children, then each of those five children owns an undivided, you know, 20% of the, of the home place. Um, and what that means is um, that Every one of those five has an equal right to use and to possess the property and that um, any one of them can sell or transfer their share without the other owner's permission. Um, And also it means that they can, you know, they all have to agree to do any kind of activity on the land. So, um, you know, if they want to rent it or if they want to, you know, borrow money to, say, fix the roof, all the heirs have to agree. Now, my little example of five doesn't sound too complicated, but what we see over and over yes, again is, you, t- you know, those five, none of them have a will. And then it passes. Now it's, now it's owned by, you know, 20 people. And then another generation down, and it's owned by 50 people. And, mm-hmm. you know, you see this fractional ownership, um, which prevents families from realizing the value of, of that asset. Mm-hmm. So what right, we're doing, I, we, we, I'm sorry, go ahead. I've seen that. No, no, I was going to say, I have seen that happen. Um, something where there was some property that from a, a relative that we had no idea and it, and they passed and it went down and down and down. And I remember one of my cousins trying to get their, uh, I guess, $20 worth. I, I don't know how much it was worth. But it, by the time you got down to her, it really wasn't, you know, something that that was that significant, but it was still something. I think it was more of the sentimental value of, of having a, a piece of, of ancestral, you know, uh, you know, uh, just something to say, yeah, this belonged to, to a family member of mine. But that does happen a lot. And I, and I also have to say from personal experience, because I'm an only child, and so my mother just did not think it was necessary to have, you know, a will or, or anything mm-hmm. like that because I was the only one. I can tell you now, though, there were some situations where I wished that she had had a will, even though I was the only one, because anything can happen. That's exactly right. I mean, we've all we've all had family situations where, you know, somebody passes and – 
you know, after the funeral, somebody comes and says, well, you know, grandma said that, that I could have this. And somebody else says, no, she told me I could have that, you know, and it, 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 it could be, it could be the, the house or it could be things like, you know, the painting or the jewelry or something else. And um, without a will, um, there, you know, whatever, whatever the, the, the person who passed said, to who, it doesn't make a difference. Um, uh, it, it, everything gets owned and gets passed into this, you know, through this intestate statutes, which means it's all equally divided among different heirs. The thing about property that's so with land or a house that's so critical is one, as we were talking earlier, that's the, that is the most common way to pass wealth generationally, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's how people have done it from the beginning of time, right? That, um, and when you can't do that, you know, you, you're, you're, you're constantly, every generation is sort of reset back at zero. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, so not only, you know, is you have this fractional ownership, you have to get everybody to agree to do anything, but, it, but as you mentioned, it's the, it's an inherently vulnerable way of owning land because any one of those heirs can say, listen, I want, I want to get paid. I want my, the value of my one seventy fifth of this property. And I, you, I want, you know, I want to sell it. And if, and if no one in the family wants to buy it from them or not for what they think it's worth, that person mm-hmm. can force a sale of the property, can go to court and ask the court to, to, to partition the property. And, you know, when there's one or two people, you might be able to actually physically cut it. But when you get to multiple heirs, it's almost impossible to do. So what the court mm-hmm. does is it puts the property up at auction, at an open auction, and anybody mm-hmm. can buy it, not just a, somebody in the family. And if they, if, when that property gets sold at, on the courthouse steps, whoever buys it, gets the whole thing. Everybody, you know, every, now everyone will get paid their fractional share, but, you know, if, if someone in the family is still living on the land, unless they were the high bidder, they're out. And so, you know, what, you, what we have seen throughout the no squatters country rights? is, no, there's no squatter's rights. So mm. what we have seen around the country is land that, that, you know, decades ago wasn't valuable because of where it was, because it was you know, has become valuable over time. And what you see, like, is real estate developers who want, you know, who see areas gentrifying or see areas that mm-hmm. that were not considered valuable becoming valuable because of, you know, proximity to other resources. Mm-hmm. Real estate speculators will go into the property records. They will find property that's heirs property, and they will trace down an heir. And, they, you know, they will call a person up and say, Hey, do you know you own a, you know, a, you know, one twentieth of an acre of property in North Carolina, and you know, I'll I'll give you a thousand dollars for it. The person mm-hmm. who gets that call didn't even know they owned any land in North Carolina. They get the call out of the mm-hmm. blue. They're living in California. They say, sure, I'll take a thousand dollars. Now that developer <laughs> is the is the owner of that fractional share, oh, and that God. developer can force the sale and can outbid everybody else. And that's, you know, that's why we've seen the extra, that's one of the reasons for the extraordinary loss of black land over the last century. Mm-hmm. You know, millions of acres have been lo- that were owned by black um families and farmers have been are gone now. And they've been lost to this kind of really um vo- you know, vulnerable uh, land ownership model, which, to be honest, comes right out of this country's history of race, racial segregation and discrimination. Right? People mm-hmm. people couldn't couldn't have wills made. No one would do it for them. They or they mm-hmm. wouldn't trust lawyers that would. Um, you know, or lawyers did it and unscrupulously managed to insert themselves into the process. And so we mm-hmm. have, um, you know, generations that that of of property that passed without a will. So one of the things we're doing in Eatonville, you know, which is a which is the oldest black incorporated community in the country, is we're looking at property records to determine who might have heirs property 
reaching out to potential heirs property owners and offering them legal assistance to clear to help them clear the title to work with their families to figure out where all the heirs are or what percentages are owned and then to try to um, resolve that so that the families can maintain and realize the value of that property and we're also hoping to start uh, working with folks who um, own property that but don't have wills yet so we can prevent heirs property from being created right that's the other thing we want to we want to resolve the problems that exist but we also want to help folks and make sure that they we don't create any more problems going forward right and I, I'm so glad to hear that you, you're doing a lot of that work in, 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 in Eatonville because I do see where uh, there's just, you know, encroachment upon that town um, from the outside and, and no, no value is being placed on the historical significance of that town. So I, I'm glad that you all are doing that work there. Uh, I hated to see the destruction of um, Hungerford Elementary there, I mean the high school. Sorry, there, yes. and because I, I, I had already <laughs> in my mind had been formulating plans and just trying to figure out how I could come up with the financial support for it, and then to only find out that it was being torn down. So, um, but and there are you know other places there that could really use um, some help in terms of restoration there. So. Um, exactly. I mean, so, with it, you know, that one of the forces of, you know, one of the reasons that communities like Eatonville are so vulnerable to gentrification is mm-hmm. because of this this fragile ownership status that a lot of the land is held in, um, and which disadvantages like those have, homeowners. I would like to have you back on to talk about gentrification because. You know, I've seen it happen. Uh, my mother-in-law lives in, in Philadelphia, and I've seen what's going on up there. And, you know, I've seen a little bit of, of it here. And, you know, I mentioned it to people. I'm, I'm in real estate, and I've mentioned it to, to other people in, in real estate. And they look at me like, what are you talking about? And, and I really would like for you, if you have some time, it, when, when you want to bring the other students back on, too, uh, to talk about gentrification and how it helps and how it hurts. So would you be willing to to do that? Wonderful. Wonderful. So how can we get in contact with you and the clinic if someone needed your services? So folks can call the clinic. Support you um, financially too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, folks can always call the clinic at 407 Two five four four thousand, and um, we can connect them with one of the students and could conduct the intake over the phone or set up a time to meet. Or folks can um, email um, the clinic, and they can email me. It's just m a r k dot d o r o s i n at famu dot edu. And I can send them an electronic version of the intake form. They can then fill that out and send it back to us. Um, or folks can also just Google Economic Justice Clinic FAMU, and we'll take them right to the clinic page. And the intake form, is uh, there's a link to it on that page as well. I was thinking about what you were talking about um, in terms of value of land and how people look at it and how it changes, because I think some of what you were talking about was going on in the Winter Garden area where they have, um, I yes. want to say, like uh, trailer parks, mobile homes that are on water. And we now, you know, obviously waterfront property is the thing to have and how they're mm-hmm. having to fight to keep their property. So. It's exactly really right, and you know, and yeah. and um, and there's there, you know, there's no. We need both education, we need outreach, and we need structural support. You know, as you said earlier, something really profound struck me. You know, there are other values to this property than just you know what the market uh, price is, right? There, there's historical value, there's familial value, there's cultural mm-hmm. value, and that needs to be taken into account as we're looking at. Um, both developing and protecting these communities. 
Thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate you taking the time today on short notice, too. You know, but it's been a blessing to have you on here, and I look forward to having you back when you have some time. Thank you so much. You it's take care. Delight. Have a blessed day. You too. Talk to Bye. You soon. Bye. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Kevin Anderson is going to give us an update on something we were talking about yesterday. You might already have seen a little bit. This is G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment, and we will be right back. Does it appear the long arm of the law is working against you instead of for you? Whom do you call when the boys in blue are pursuing you? When the wrong person behind bars may end up being you? With over 40 years combined legal expertise, Anderson and Welch bring to bear a smart, sound, sensible defense of those caught in what may be the unrelenting grip of the legal system. Turn to Anderson and Welch first to get ahead of trouble, not fall into it, by calling 561-832-3386. That's 561-832-3386. That's Anderson and Welch Law Firm online at andersonandwelch.com. Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour. I never had it so good entertainment. I am your host, G. Thank you so much for being with us. And Kevin Anderson, are you there? I'm here. I'm here. So even as we speak, good afternoon. Thank you so much for for coming back. As we speak, Attorney Ben Crump uh, is uh, doing a press conference representing the Tyree Nichols case. So we don't want you to not listen to the show, but you can if you can multitask, you can kind of split your attention a little bit. We're only going to be on for another uh, nine minutes or so. But, Kevin, what's the update? The update is that, uh, as we predicted and anticipated, the officers in the case have now been indicted for several offenses. The charges are uh, second-degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, two counts of official misconduct and official oppression. Um, All except one of the police officers has uh, been released from uh, custody. And uh, at this point, uh, the one remaining officer in custody has bail in the amount of $350,000. The four officers who posted bail, actually uh, three of the officers who posted bail, uh, did so in the amount of $250,000, with the fourth officer who was released posting the $350,000 bail. So uh, the case is now uh, going to move forward for prosecution in the criminal courts, and uh, we anticipate at some point later this afternoon or this evening that uh, certain portions of the video from the uh, the the beating uh, that resulted in the death of uh, Tyree Nichols will be uh, made available for some public consumption. I, I don't think we're going to see um, everything. I just uh, I just don't think that that is going to be released uh, at all uh, to in its entirety, rather to everyone. Uh, but snippets here and snippets there. Uh, I have sent you the actual indictment. I emailed that to you in PDF form so that you can post that uh, for people to see and uh, get a feel for the actual elements which constitute the offenses that now have been uh, have been charged uh, uh, against the, the uh, five police officers. All right. So, so break this down for ignorant people like me. Um, Sure. What determines the amount of bail? Great question. Uh, a number of factors. Generally, states will have what's known as a bond schedule. So that is a predetermined uh, assessment of what each offense would generally require a person to post bail to be released uh, uh, for. Now, with respect to uh, these cases, um, things like the gravity of the offense, meaning, you know, if it's a very, very serious charge, uh, whether the person poses a flight risk. Um, for example, if they get out, maybe they'll never come back, or maybe if we release them from custody, 
there'll be a combination of a release and a, an ankle monitor or some periodic reporting so that uh, you don't get away uh, if you decide to run and uh, whether the person has ties to the community, that's big because if, you, if you've grown up in the community, if you have like parents or children or you own property in the community, you know, there are uh, things that keep you kind of nearby, all right, or circumstances that would result in you returning. And uh, whether there are prior offenses as well, that typically is a, a factor in uh, determining the amount of bail. These are police officers, so I doubt that there are prior offenses uh, of, of a criminal nature. So does this also go back to what you were alluding to about whether you're not you were the police officer that actually laid hands on Mr. Nichols versus standing back and watching and not doing anything or something like that? Absolutely. The $350,000 bond, which was uh, given to two of the particular uh, defendants at this point, suggests that those two officers had more involvement in the case. Uh, I'm not trying to minimize the involvement for the remaining three, but there, there is a distinction. And that disparity, I would suggest, would uh, point to their actual involvement in the case. And, and since there is a, a kidnapping count uh, and there are two uh, official, or at least uh, there is a, a, a two official misconduct counts, something tells me that those two officers might have had something to do with the, actual, the initial stop to begin with because those counts deal with um, some things involving their position and their, as uh, official agents or uh, in the uh, performance of their duties or because of the nature of their employment that had to be intertwined with that particular charge. So what's coming now? What's coming now is an arraignment they will now have to answer uh, to the charge that is imposed against them. And, the, of course, the response will be a not guilty plea. I think two of the lawyers in the case so far have indicated that they're going to enter not guilty pleas. That's sort of pro forma. Uh, every defendant typically enters a not guilty plea at this stage of a case. No one gets arrested and goes right to a podium and pleads guilty unless it's you know, something relatively minor, and, and they just want to get it over with to get out of jail or something like that. At this point, they will now enter not guilty pleas, and then what's known as the discovery phase will begin, where the parties exchange documents, the parties will begin to list witnesses, there may or may not be motions to take depositions in the particular case, and of course, uh, plea negotiations are going to commence. I anticipate that one, if not more, of the defendants will begin to try to work a deal against uh, another, well, with the government for testimony against another defendant in order to get something that they think is appropriate for them to have a mitigated uh, uh, sentence in the case. Uh, there's so much more you know I can ask you. Uh, well, one thing yeah. real quick. These these officers and, and other officers that have gotten in trouble, basically their careers are, are over whether or not they're found guilty, right, pretty much? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So, I yep, mean, you, so you have people that are put in these positions or, you know, they apply and they train for these positions that say, trust me, trust me, trust me, and then they break the trust. What? Yes. What are the possibilities in terms of employment? And like I said, I know we don't have much time, so maybe, you know, this is a setup for a later show. But where do they go from here? I mean, who's, who's uh, going to hire them? How can they be hired? Well, I, it sounds like a great time for a career change, uh, honestly, because they're not going to be sworn officers for any agency again. So they, they, they're young men. And uh, they're, you know, with their youth and, and I guess, intelligence, they can find some place in life. Um, you know, so, but it's safe to say that place won't be with a police agency. 
And y'all need to watch out for these people um, who may be trying to develop a side hustle in this, in this field. I, I agree. Just, I agree. Just saying. But, um, <laughs> we've got a yeah. couple, you know, I mean, like you said, there are things we could talk about. Yes, we'll do it another time. time. And we'll do yeah. it another time. So I uh, just wanted to give you an update. And, uh, you, you know, Kevin. if you need me back soon, let me know. I will. Happy Friday yeah, to you and your family. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Enjoy the weekend. This has been G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. Be well, be safe, be blessed, and please remember, all real power comes from God. Talk soon. Take care. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.